this special episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea. I can't tell you how thrilled I am for the weeks ahead and what's in store as we learn and listen together. As you know, February marks Black History Month. Up until a few weeks ago, I was struggling with how to approach this month with the podcast. Not only am I a white woman, but I'm very aware that this is not my story to tell. I'm also very hesitant to approach women to be guests on the podcast during their certain culture or races quote month, because I want them to know their voices are valued and important 12 months of the year, not just the one highlighting them. Furthermore, I really struggle with just one month being Black History Month. If you look at our country's true history, then you'll know Black history is American history. This country was built on the backs of Black people, especially Black women. Black women who were stolen, separated from their children, sold, bought, raped, bred, and forced to raise white people's children, manage houses that weren't their own, and cook and serve food for the very white people who wouldn't even sit by them on the bus or drink from the same water fountain. But as we'll learn and explore, despite everyone trying to hold them down, black women not only survived, but they rose up and excelled in many areas, and they have never been given the credit they deserve. So when Marcy approached me and asked if I would be interested in partnering with her to celebrate black women this month, of course I said yes. Marcy Elvis Walker is the woman behind the popular Instagram and blog, Black Coffee with White Friends and the creator of Mockingbird History Lessons. If you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time, you know Marcy was a guest in the early episodes and has been a reoccurring favorite podcast guest of mine. So, the next four weeks, I'm honored to partner with my dear friend Marcy as we celebrate the often overlooked yet phenomenal Black women in our country's history. Each week, Marcy and I will be joined by other Black women who you have already met on this podcast. I will turn the mic over to them as we listen and learn from the voices of Black women about the beauty and essence of their ancestors. Okay, should we dive into today's conversation, Marcy? Let's dive in. Okay. Marcy, welcome back to the Her Story Speaks podcast. It's It's been a little stretch since you've been here. Yeah, it's been a stretch, but you know, you and I text and talk often, especially Mm -hmm. (laughs) with the latest happenings in our country. We've we've shared a lot. So yeah, but it's good to be in this kind of space. I know. I am excited because a lot of our conversations have been really hard and heavy and not Mm -hmm. very joy-filled. And Mm -hmm. I am excited that this one is going to be a little different because we're celebrating Black History Month and the women that we don't know about and the stories that we don't know about. So would you, in case people don't know who you are, will you just tell us just a brief little bit about yourself, Marcy? I hope my guess, my listeners know who you are by now, but just in case they're just joining for the first time. I'm Marcy Alvis Walker, and I am a writer. I have two kind of platforms. One is Black Coffee of White Friends, which is where I write about my personal experiences of race as a Black Christian woman who moves in pretty much predominantly white spaces. That's a little less now because I've I've moved to Chicago and I've moved to an area that's much more diverse. But still, my life has been spent being educated in white schools and white colleges and, you know, being the only Black person there, being the only Black mom. So that's still very much my 
history. And then speaking of history, I also have a Patreon community um, where I do weekly history lessons called Mockingbird History, where we talk about the unspoken hidden stories in our history that tell us a little bit more about how we've gotten to the place that we are right now, the divisive kind of um, rhetoric of race and politics and how did we get here? And actually, when you go back in our history, we have, we're just really repeating things. It just looks a lot different. So we talk about that in Mockingbird history. And soon I will be having my first book published. So That's amazing. excited about that. I would yeah. tell you more, except it's my first time out and nothing's, it's just Okay, well, something, y'all. <laughs> you know, I'll have we'll have you back on. I'm sure a lot of podcasters will want you on to talk about your book and the release of it. So we'll make sure when that gets closer, we talk about that and make sure everybody knows where to find it. Okay. Oh, great. I love it. So like you mentioned, Mockingbird History touches on and it takes a deep dive into like hidden stories in our history. Mm -hmm. And that is what we are going to do this month. Black History Month is focus, take a deeper dive into some really hidden, uncelebrated stories of women in Black history. So do you want to just say kind of how this came about and maybe kind of an overview of what this month's going to look like. Yeah. 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 So you and I were talking on the phone about possibly doing a book club. Mm-hmm. You, you were talking about wanting to do something that brought a little bit more light and levity to the things that we always are talking about. And I love the idea of that. And I was thinking the same thing, but we were, I, we had a different idea altogether. And then for Christmas, I received this, this book called the Anne Jemima Code. Well, it's called the Jemima Code, not Angela, yes. but it's Jemima Code yes. by Tony Tipton Martin. And I thought I had had it on my wish list for such a long time, thinking it was a cookbook because I do collect cookbooks and I especially love collecting cookbooks by African-Americans, written by Af- African-Americans. And um, I found out that it's not, it's a history book about the history of African-American women in the culinary arts from the time of slavery straight through to 1990, I think is when she ends. But she talks about the stereotype of the, of Aunt Jemima, um, of Mammy, and how it was this concocted image to put out about Black women to really kind of steal their shine and to make them less threatening. Um, Because in actuality, I know, you know, we're going to talk about history. In actuality, most mammies didn't exist. Most of the women that worked in kitchens, uh, most of the enslaved women who worked in kitchens and out in the field were actually undernourished, not overnourished. Another thing is that they were actually very skilled at what they did. They had to be, their lives depended on it. So they weren't um, these women who were being taught how to do something. They were learning, so to speak, on the job. Yeah. yeah. Being paid for this work and how that work then turned into domestic work after, um, 
the Emancipation Proclamation because legally that was one of the only jobs that Black women could do. And I'm going to repeat that. That is legally <sighs> the only job they could do. They could not go be a this or a that or three. So um, we have to understand that a lot of what Black women have contributed to this country isn't because that's what they wanted to contribute. It's because it's the only thing they could contribute. Right. It was the right. only thing that the country was willing to have of these women. And right. that is significant because even with that, they made huge leaps and steps. They turned domestic work into entrepreneurship, into cookbooks, into um, movie roles, into they took that one narrative that they were getting given and they made um, multiple stories and left multiple legacies for us as women to look to. So I'm excited to celebrate yeah. these women and to celebrate this beautiful work that Tony um, Tipton Martin has created and celebrate a couple of other cookbooks that um, she talks about in, in a cookbook that she wrote called Jubilee because Black History Month is about joy and celebration. And while we also want to be learning, we also want to be celebrating. And rather than going back through history um, and talking about the painful things that were overcome, let's talk about these women who are rarely spoken about or even thought about um, and how we've moved from the Aunt Jemima Mamie to the sitting Madam Vice President. It is a story, y'all. It is amazing. So glad as women, no matter what color you are, this is a very significant story for women. And when you first told me this idea, of course, I'm always open to your ideas. So, but I was like, huh, cookbooks, never thought of that. And because <laughs> personally, I don't love to cook, <laughs> but I do love history, but I would never have really associated the two. And yeah. then I bought the book been diving in, you know, been diving in, learning myself the last week or two. And it's fascinating and how overlooked this has been. I think I read this quote to you in the book, but it says historians and scholars recognize recipes and cookbooks as important research tools for understanding women and their work. Yeah. So what the author did in this book, she collected 375 cookbooks that were produced by Black women, made by Black women, and she is celebrating Black women's history that has been minimized, overlooked, that they haven't gotten credit for at all. And it is it is fascinating. So that's what we're going to talk about and explore the next three, four weeks through the month of February. And you're going to be posting things on your Instagram relating right. to it. And we really want to encourage listeners to get the book. So Jemima Code is a kind of a hard one to get, um, but Jubilee yeah. we'll put links to in the show notes because that is her second book that's really celebrating a lot of what she found out and recipes and stories and that's when we really want to encourage people to get and we'll have challenges and questions and all that yeah so okay okay so we're going to give an overview today and just dive into a few things here hey let's start with the image of jemima so mm -hmm. she talks about that mm -hmm. what are your thoughts when you see that because there has been talk of it this year with you know getting rid of that image because i think she kind of has an interesting take on it so let's just start with the cover jemima that image you know um i as a kid going to an all white school, it, it was not uncommon for someone to use it as a slur. Mm. Um, so as a kid, I had a complicated feeling about Jemima and Mammy. 
I didn't know any black woman who looked like that growing up. And I mean, I knew, and I don't mean her size or her skin color. I mean, I didn't know black women who wore aprons and um, rags around their heads when I, you know, I grew up in the, in the eight, the seventies and eighties. Um, so I didn't know women who looked like that, but my classmates seemed to think that I did. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, but that stereotype already. Yeah. 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 But what I knew were women who were very concerned about their outward appearance. And as I dug more into why in particular she is that way, the history of it, I've come to really love her in a, in a, in a different way, not in a way where I want to collect racist memorabilia, right. no, but in a way where I want to give her, give that idea of black woman back its dignity. Because for one, one of the reasons that black women in slave days wore head wraps, it wasn't to protect our hair. Sometimes it was because the enslavers didn't like our hair and they wanted it covered. They didn't want to see it. So we have to, we have to look at that. Um, Another thing is the idea of us being the bosom and the the comfort of whiteness. That's a very true thing. So you have things like Carl Perna from To Kill a Mockingbird and you have Nell from Give Me a Break. And you have these icons of Black women who kind of sing and dance and cook and keep the family together. The sad part for me, the difficult thing for me is that it's true for me. You know, I'm a I'm a singing, comforting Black woman. I, I sing and dance and comfort and cook all the time. But for some reason, the idea of saying that even now out loud feels vulnerable to me. Yeah. Because... We, we've really been very dismissive of what the kitchen means, what warmth and nurture means, because that's something that's for common folk and really for Black women to do. So I have a harder time with when people say that Black women are saving America right now. And I'm just like, no, we're not. We're not saving America. We're saving ourselves. We're saving our children. We're saving our grandchildren. That you get to come along for the ride. Right. That's just a consequence of what has to be done. But it's not that we are so concerned for whiteness that we would do the things that we've done, risk what we've risked to save America. No, 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 no. Right. We are, we are saving our futures, our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, um, our husbands, our sons, that's what we're doing. And that our voting or our work or our, you know, our showing up in places feels like a save to whiteness. It's very reminiscent of Scarlet and Mammy. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that because obviously as a white woman, I've never walked in those shoes. So I, I don't instantly get that correlation. Like to me, that's a, a compliment. But when you explain it this way in the correlation and we know the history, mm-hmm. that's why it's important to know that and see where Black women are coming from with what how they've been looked at and portrayed and stereotyped. So going back to that image of Jemima, um, 
Tony Tipton Martin, she's really good in her book mm-hmm. of saying like, it's, we're, we're going to reclaim that. Like this negative stereotype that we felt and had when we break this Jemima code, we can transform her into an inspirational, powerful symbol of culinary wisdom and authority, a role model in a sense. So that's what her book is doing. That's kind of what we're planning to do, not with Jemima, but not just with Aunt Jemima, who, by the way, was a real person, which fascinating to go look at her story. And I can't imagine all the money that she made for that milling company and didn't get probably anything. That's yeah. That's a side. That's a side note. Well, but yeah, it's 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 hard to trace. Um, mm-hmm. And and you're talking about the image, how we've how we've decided that we no longer want that image. I feel some kind of way about that because I'm, curious, I'm like, yeah. yeah, I don't want anyone to profit off the image of a black woman, but I also don't want her discarded. She's not a Confederate general. She doesn't deserve right. to be discarded. She deserves her, her propers. Mm-hmm. She deserves her flowers now. That's and right. so the fact that the company has just removed all evidence of her really stings to me. I feel like they should do a museum for her. I feel I like they should write a book. I feel like there should be a movie about her story and she should be given proper due because we're talking about impossible situations. So I'm just going to briefly tell her story. So yeah, do. basically her story was that these brothers who had a mill company um, decided that a pancake recipe would be a good way to sell more flour. Yeah, they were going out of business. They were like, yeah. They were going out of business. So then they thought, well, who better to sell our pancake flour than the image of the mammy on the farm, a happy slave. Not only was she just a happy slave, she was a civil war slave, like to some Confederate general. That was the whole story that they made up and that she loved serving this Confederate family and that um, she would just serve them these pancakes and these were her famous pancakes. So they didn't even, they didn't steal her recipe, they stole her image and they, um, distorted it because she didn't look that way. They just distorted it to make it fit um, what they thought she should be. And over the years, you'll see if you go back in history and look at the pictures, she got larger, she got more um, animalistic features. Um, the more that Black women became free, the more they distorted this image. Yes. And so... Um, then people started, when that happens, women started writing cookbooks, (laughs) white women started writing cookbooks. Now you have to remember white women weren't cooking like how we, right now, they, you're, if you were a middle-class, upper middle-class family, you had a girl that your girl, that's what they called her, um, who came to service the needs of the family, like, like Calperna and um, To Kill a Mockingbird, or if you watch the show, I'll Fly Away, if you remember that show from PBS. They were domestics that came to um, white homes. They generally didn't live in the home, but they came to white families and they did, you know, the nannying, they did it all. They nannied, they cooked, they sewed, they cleaned, um, they ran errands. 
And so she comes, to, they had their girl to do that. But what would happen is that these women would have their junior league cookbooks or they would decide that they wanted to write a cookbook and they'd take the recipes of the black women and they would put it into a book and they put their name on it. It's their cookbook. Uh-huh. Um, when in actuality, none of those recipes belong to them. And you have to remember, most white women at the time were not baking biscuits in the kitchen. They were, they had a girl who did that for them, who brought her recipes and did that. But she also was making salmon puffs or whatever else fancy that the right. woman wanted. Right. So these were chefs, personal chefs that were working in these um, home kitchens, but they just didn't have the title of that. And because the women often couldn't read and write, and we have to remember the reason that they couldn't read and write wasn't because they just weren't good at school. There was never an opportunity for them to to go to school. And even though there were segregated schools, black schools were so far away from the black neighborhood that a lot of times it just wasn't feasible to send your child to school. They had to go through so much to get there. Or um, the family needed every bit of income because it was a sharecropping family. And the way that sharecropping worked, the robbery of it was that um, you had to work four times as hard to even make a profit. And most of the time you didn't, you were just breaking even. So we have all these reasons for why these women never could learn to read and write. And also the biggest reason was that their enslaved parents, it was illegal for them to learn to read and write for many slaves. And so they weren't able to write down these recipes. They were incredibly intelligent because they had them in their minds. They had them in their minds. They, they, they knew how to make countless. I make dishes all the time. This is a funny thing. I make meals all the time. And sometimes I'll make like this really great meal from my head. And then my family be like, well, we'll never see that again because they'll <laughs> never yes. remember how to make it. And they're not lying. I uh-huh. won't remember how to make that. So enjoy it now. But these <laughs> women didn't have that ability. If, if there was something that the family liked, they needed to know how to make that. That's and right. Remember it because they couldn't. I mean, when I do Thanksgiving dinner, think about how you plan your Thanksgiving mm-hmm. meal. You have a game plan that you write down. Right. You have it. Um, You have all your recipes pulled together and out. Um, Some of you who are really skilled may have some of those recipes floating in your head, but a lot of it, you're going to have to look up something. For sure, yes. At least have to write down a plan. Mm -hmm. These women could not write a plan. (laughs) And they were cooking not just for four or five people. Um, they were cooking for the, the, whoever the master was, well, the enslaver was entertaining, whoever, um, the woman of the house was inviting over. So her whole family, and they were making that meal. So I just think we've, we can't just erase her. We can't just say that doesn't matter. So the woman, the one that different women have played um, and Jemima, um, Disney had an Aunt Jemima pancake restaurant. And, I did not know that. Yes. And women <laughs> would dress up like Aunt Jemima and take pictures with children and pictures with families. So it's, it's, a, it's a comforting feeling that people have been, people are very comfortable with this role of Black woman. Mm-hmm. And when she's not in that role, she's either two other things that 
Tony Tipton. Martin talks about, but she's not the only one in history who talks about it. She plays the role of the Jezebel or the Sapphire. And the Jezebel is the sass, is the is the sexual, overly sexualized um, right. um, seductress um, who lures um, white men from their poor white women. Oh, you know, how can they handle right. it? Um, so then, and then there's the Sapphire, who's the sassy, talks back, um, belittles her her own husband. No one really wants that kind of a woman. She's um, basically what in scripture, the woman with the, the constant drip, it's better to be on the roof of your house. Yes. house. That's what she's portrayed as in movies. And we have to understand that these movies aren't written by black people. Mm-hmm. They're written by white people. And then when black people could write their movies in order to make a movie and have it produced, they had the right to the taste of a white gaze, the white gaze that Toni Morrison so famously talks about. So if you wanted to write a movie that uplifted Black women, well, the producers, the executive producers, the people who are giving you the money to actually be able to put on your movie, and then you need a distribution house, and then you need movie theaters who we show it. Ava DuVernay talks a lot about this. If they're not gelling with it, then that movie doesn't get made and you have to compromise. And a lot of times what's compromised is the way that white people prefer to see blackness. I'm so glad you said that. And I think we'll talk about that in some future episodes, but I just recently, this is a little off topic, but did you ever watch the Madam C.J. Walker series? So I watched it with my 11 year old. I thought it was, we had already learned about her, but seeing that and I'm like, oh, well that was, that was really good. I didn't know all this. Well, then I read and I'm like, there was, there was controversy on that because black people were not happy how they were portrayed, how they were portrayed the, you know, the enemy with the, the, the woman with lighter skin, like that was so distorted. Still white people tried to put black women in these boxes to fit the white person stereotype and how they fit. And I think that's, again, why we need to be aware of the history and what we're learning and teaching and consuming. Right. And the, and, the, and the problem with that, because um, we watched that too, Madam C.J. Walker, it's that the there there is a history of anim, anonymity. I think that's what it is. Um, animosity. Animosity. Oh, okay. between yes. Light skin and it's called colorism. So there mm-hmm. is that animosity within the black community, especially with black women. But that's not what would hold us back. Right. <laughs> because, right. And that's what the movie showed. Yeah. And that was or not... The, yeah. Or the black male investors. That's not what would hold her. That's back. right. That's so right. I think that's that that was so much more of the focus was the infighting within yes. the community, that, that that was the thing that she had. That was her biggest problem. No. Right. That was right. not her biggest problem. Right. Yeah. And so that relates back to these the cooks, the black cooks and the black women, because that's what they had. The the white women stealing their recipes, holding them back. And going back to just how amazing these the black cooks the black women cooks were is not only did they have to have the recipes in their minds but the resources they had and the adaptability from cooking in very wealthy kitchens to all right. the everything they needed to then going back to their Homes. very humble home with the leftovers or whatever they could navigate mm-hmm. and and transferring from one to another and being able to create these recipes so do you want to talk right. about that a little bit because that's kind of part of breaking the code and how amazing they were in their cooking. Just think about that day. The, the I could not 
even function if I had another family, especially during this pandemic to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing about it is, and I had a a grandmother who was a laundress. um, So she took in people's laundry. Um, I think that the thing that's, that's, that we need to remember with this duplicitous life that had to be lived was the white families weren't really aware or needing to need, felt that they needed to be aware that she also had children or that she also had. And if she had children and, and they needed to come to her for some reason, that it depended on the owner, like the, the, the employer, was that going to be um, frowned upon? Was there going to be um, repercussions for that? Um, so you got to remember there, there are these women who are planning these elaborate and, and making these elaborate birthday cakes and um, celebrations for white children um, that she couldn't give her own child, you know? But that doesn't mean that what was given to her child felt less than. Right. Because maybe in, in any, if anything, it felt like it was more because their own mothers, you know, to have your own mother bake your cake is one thing. Mm-hmm. To have your you know, your nanny or whatever she would be called, um, the girl to make your cake is, is, is a whole different other thing. But um, I think I once put a poem up by, I, I'll have to find, I can't think of it, but the gist of the poem was about a domestic who has a day off. It, it goes through her ironing her clothes for, for church and just l- languishing in her own time. She had this own time to herself. I thought this was just a beautiful poem. <laughs> and women, white women fought <laughs> over the meaning of this poem. Um, some women, I think one woman was really like, I had someone who cared for, you know, and her name was this. And there was a huge sensitivity there. The idea that there could be sadness in taking care of white people mm-hmm. really struck a nerve with some of the women who follow me who actually have had black caretakers. So they were very incensed because they just didn't think that she in any way resented it. Interesting. Yeah. And I thought, I'm not saying that she resented it, but I'm saying that she didn't have a choice. That's and right. That was a job and she didn't have another yeah. alternative. Would we call that white fragility, Marcy? <laughs> And something else, something else. I don't know. I don't think the name because it was really a very, very clearly a visceral reaction for for many of the That's women interesting. like that. That interesting. idea, this woman's own family. Because I think mm-hmm. in my commentary, what my comment I said, my caption I said, you know, that she had her own family, that she had her own community, yeah, and that to to have that ownership of herself was rare and um treasured and for some reason um well I know the reason um (laughs) fragile feelings and Uh a little guilt and my thing is 
these women were glad to have their jobs. I didn't say that they weren't glad to have a job. Of course they were glad. They were glad to have a job and they were glad to have. And I think one, I think it was another woman had said, she got mad at this other woman and said, well, how dare you say that? Because she had to take care of you. She wasn't taking care of her own family. Mm -hmm. And that's where I had to jump in and say, hold up now. Her children had family still taking care of them. She had she probably had aunties, neighbors. So there, it's not like, you know, we were just left in the wind. Yeah. It's that we, we figured out a way to care for, to do the job, to do the dang job that we need to do and also make sure that our things got taken care of. That's right. And when I hear you saying this, I'm thinking, once again, have white women centering themselves? Like, this wasn't about them. Your post was not not about the white women. But yet we come and we try to center ourselves, Mm -hmm. just like what happened with the the Black women that were cooks and chefs. Mm -hmm. And the white women tried to center themselves. And that's why their history has been so minimized and overlooked. And that's why it's important that we dig up the truth and give them the credit they they deserve. So let's talk real quick. It's kind of on the same subject. We spoke about it, but it's just fascinating how food has always been integrated. So yeah, so touch on that. Like there's so many directions, but touch on that a little bit. Okay, well, if we really want to talk about it, it was the whole, I believe that the whole need of spices. I remember when Columbus set out, he was looking for Mm -hmm. spices and he was looking for sugar and he was looking for things that resided in um, the Caribbean and Africa Mm -hmm. um, and in these places with um, people of color. And so in, in, in India where he thought he was, but he wasn't. So in native Americans, um, culture here in the States. So we, we think about how integrate integration works and it's a funny thing. So think about this. These women did not want to sit next to maids, black people on the bus, but these were the women who took care of the very intimate details of their home. So they had no problems with them having their hands in their biscuit dough, which I find much more intimate. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, um, they had no problems with that, but they really didn't want to sit next to them. So it wasn't, you can't say that there was something wrong with Black people and that's why there was this sort they or that they even believed that there was something wrong with black people or that black people were incompetent or that black people were dirty when was the last time that you yourself personally hired someone that you thought was incompetent and dirty especially to cook your food and to serve your meals your yeah to serve yeah. your meals to nurse your children to yeah. get them off to school no so it was that that obliterates the whole um, unequal thing that we were less worthy. That's right. Um, They were trusting black women and black men to care for their homes, their cars, their, um, their, their clothing, their housing. So if you really felt that they were that incompetent, you wouldn't entrust that that much to them. You just wouldn't. So that's one thing. So they were willing to integrate when it came to that biscuit recipe, when it came to um, 
even the French recipes that many of these women made, because you got to remember there was a lot of French Caribbean women who were um, enslaved in America. So we had all these complicated dishes. And in order to get that food into their kitchens, they were quite willing to integrate. So the American culinary history has always been integrated and infiltrated with blackness and brownness. That yes. has, that's just a fact. When you just think about corn from native native peoples, mm-hmm. when you think about sugar from um, sugarcane coming from um, all kinds of um, um, places that are the country and the land of brown and black people, when you think about curry, when you think about just any pepper, um, we, we've always been willing to integrate there, but we've not been so generous with crediting the people who are responsible for that. That's another reason why they also enslaved African people. They enslaved people who knew the crop. That's right. That's right. The crop, because let me tell you, people coming from England weren't coming from sugar, sugar plantations in England. That's right. Like just reading in that Jubilee book, I highlighted a little bit what you're talking about, but just talking about all the things that survived the first generation of Middle Passage survivors Mm -hmm. to the New World. Okra, yams, nutmeg, allspice, cinnamon, prickly pear, avocado, beans, dates, wild grape, like. The list goes on and on. It's fascinating. I loved everything she said about avocado. Me too. I had no idea. Avocado toast. Like it just made me feel so good that avocado toast was ours a long time ago. Yes. And it was called, what was it called? It was called alligator pear. Yes. Yes. That's what it was called. So, you know, there's a, there's something she talks about the guacamole recipe in uh, enslaved woman's receipts. They called the, they called the um, recipes receipts. Right. Um, so she had her receipts. And one of the receipts was this recipe for guacamole. She spelt it as it is phonetically said, like yes. the pronunciation yes. of it. But I love that because Lord knows Whole Foods and we love our avocados like we have loved yoga. It's uh-huh. a, it, I mean, we, we really have to get real about what is healthy and what is unhealthy. And that was one of the things that came through in these books, the idea that Black food, soul food is so unhealthy. That's and that's right. why we have a high rate of diabetes. And that's why there's, they're fatter or this, that, and the other. And it's such nonsense. Right. I mean, I want y'all to think for one second about the French cuisine, but we don't say that that's unhealthy. That's we right. don't say that a pound of butter to make one croissant is unhealthy. That's right. Or we will say that a, a bowl of grits will kill you. That's right. So we have made um, African-American cuisine, Black diaspora of cuisine to be something that is unhealthy when, in fact, most of our recipes coming from the the lands that we came from were grilled, were steamed. We were already doing that, a lot of raw things. a lot From the land, yes. From the land. We were already doing this um, kind of cooking that now is like the latest health craze and it's still here. And so the fact that 
if you took a chicken cordon bleu and put it in front of a person and they would say, oh, that's lovely. And it's, you know, the, the halt of cuisine. But if you took a piece of fried chicken, they would say that's common right. and unhealthy and fattening. So we really do have a language about food that is colorized. I have a quick story to tell. Yes. Um, so I worked in the food industry for years and years and years and years. I started as a um, server, but I was always fascinated with food. I used to, when I was in high school, I used to spend Saturday afternoons as soon as um, Soul Train went off, no joke, because we used to clean the house so that we could watch Soul Train, me and my sister. Um, when it was still on, it, it went off air mid, I think, I don't know what year, but while I was in high school, I think. But then I would sit and watch PBS. Okay. And I would watch Julia Child and I watch Jack Pepin and I watch all the shows, um, the Frugal Gourmet and mm -hmm. all those shows from back mm -hmm. then. Um, and I fantasized about having these kinds of ritzy parties and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going into the food industry because I just, I just loved the whole pomp and circumstance of it, right? So um, I was working at a, a pretty hoity-toity restaurant here in Chicago in my 20s. I think I was in my mid to late 20s. Um, and one of the cooks, one of the sous chefs was asked to cater a private event right on Lakeshore Drive, a beautiful penthouse um, condo overlooking the lake, like wealth. And his girlfriend would not work the event with him. And she, it was, it was going to pay a hundred dollars, which okay. back in the day, that was like a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to sell out like that. His girlfriend just wouldn't do it. She's like, I don't like these kind of people. I'm not going to do it. And I was like, I don't understand how they're any different than the people that we serve here in this restaurant. Right. So I volunteered to do it. Not volunteered. I said that I would take the gig. So we get there on a Saturday night and it is y'all, this place was like nothing you've ever seen, but it was a, a world that I did not, I was like, okay, that's a maid's room and I can see this maid's uniform. Oh, wow. okay. okay. Um, she has pictures, there's pictures of this woman and her husband with the bushes. Oh, she's with, oh, she's with the Reagans. Oh, she, so this was like, these were yeah. connected people, yes. right? And so we had this, all these who's who of I don't know who's are coming to this party and um, it's just gorgeous. And we're in the kitchen and we're hand washing. She's explaining to me um, how to hand wash and treat her, her crystal, how, what can go in the dishwasher, what can't, which is appreciated. But I was raised with crystal, but apparently she didn't think I was. So, um, so we, uh, we, we get there and at the end of the night, she comes in to assess how we did. Well, we, we didn't clean fast enough. She was upset about that. But then she said, you know, and the husband came in behind her and he's like, oh, everything was so delicious and this, that, and the other. And she gave him this look like, what are you talking about? There were problems. And he goes, she goes, not the chicken. And he said, oh, there was an issue with the chicken. And she says, we don't eat chicken like how they eat chicken. And I'm black. The guy who, sh the chef who cooked it was white. 
he made the recipe from a chef that was white. It was that recipe from that fancy restaurant's menu. But for some reason, she saw me serving this chicken that was a butter-based chicken, and she assumed that it was less than. Now, if she had been served that French dish in France, she would have not had an issue with the chicken. Right. But right. it was my black face in this these America, this America serving her that made her question the yeah. worth and the value right. of this chicken dish. Right. So we're talking about that. Yeah. And because yeah. we have a history of doing that of and that's yeah. reclaiming that that soul food and that image of what we think soul food is or black cooking and decolonizing and our plate. And what you said, you, you sent me a post that was so yes. brilliant um, about like kale is not any healthier than collard greens. You know, yes, let's, like, let's decolonize good. our plate, too. Well, and I told you the story about going to um, I think I told you you or someone the story about going to. Whole Foods with my sister. You told me, yes, yes, yeah. And my sister wondering why the heck people were walking around with, why were they selling sweatshirts with kale? Yes. She thought that was so strange because we grew up with making kale like we make collard greens, make mustard greens. And so the fact that they were heralding kale was so bizarre like what in the world like it's been there we we right well i read seeing so, you know, the whole foods because i was reading about the decolonizing in 2014 whole foods named collard greens as the new kale i mean literally as if like whole foods had discovered collard greens like this was a new, <laughs> new thing and it's like again going back to that history oh. and what black people have always known and what black cooks have always known so yeah there's a big thing yeah, so that's something we're going to dive deeper into and you're going to post and we're going to talk about. So yeah. on a joyful note, well, one other thing I want to mention, like this integrating, because yeah. this is fascinating, I think, for people to realize too, if they haven't thought about it, talking about how food has always been integrated, is that every U.S. president has had an African-American chef or cook working in their kitchen. Yes, yes. Every single one. I mean, Hercules for George Washington. Yeah. He was a French trained chef for the very yes, first yes. president. Yes. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that at all? Or just let yeah. people dive into um, that? And, that's, and we're going to talk more each week about how these narratives have, how we've reclaimed in ways that yeah. we haven't seen. How, you know, we can talk about Sarah, Sarah Bart, Bartman and her tragic story about body image and embodying um, and being the backbone of um, an idea of what blackness is. And then we have like Stacey Abrams. And then we have, you know, we have these, we have uh, Sally Hemings who for all purposes really was the first lady. There was no Mrs. Jefferson. There was Sally Hemings, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so she didn't get that title. She didn't get to her propers, but she very much was the only yeah. woman at yeah. that time. And yeah. so we have her, but then we have Michelle Obama who did this brilliant thing with a garden at the White House. And then we also have Camilla Harris and what she represents as a Pan-Asian and Jamaican Black woman. Um, so we, we, we've come a long way from what the stereotype is, but it's still there. It's, it's right. still there. Um, 
I forgot your question. What did you ask me? Oh, I don't even know, Marcy. Whatever you, whatever you, I oh, think it was just talking about with the White House. Yeah. But the, but like you said, yeah. we're going to dive that's deeper it. into that, but that's just yeah. another point about how food has been integrated and the important yeah. role that Black women, Black cooks have played and why. And all throughout history. And so we have that. We have Hercules. We have um, Sally Hemings' brother, James Hemings, was actually sent by Thomas Jefferson to France. Yeah. to learn um, how to cook um, a French cuisine. So we have that yeah. and yeah. brought back to be able to cook these elaborate meals that Thomas Jefferson, because he was very, very bougie, Thomas Jefferson was, um, to cook these meals. Uh -huh. But then we also have unnamed people who have always served in that White House um, and I know people will be familiar with the movie, The Butler, but more than just butlering, which is a, is a huge deal. Again, not trusted enough to vote. Think about that. Yeah, yeah. But we are trusted enough to handle what goes into the president's mouth. I mean, that is, you can't even get your mind around the irony you can't of that. Get your mind around oh, it. it's crazy. Yeah. So we've always had that. We've always been, a lot of people have said, how did we get here? We, this isn't America. And a lot of people have said, no, this is actually always right. been America. It's right. always been America. But also what has always been America is there is no whiteness without blackness. There is no success in America without blackness. There yeah. is none of that. There is no home without native people's land. That's There's right. so much there's so that much. we take for granted and we've never properly given due to. And yeah. if you question that, I just want you to think about anything in history that is significant to you. That's a good anything. Mm -hmm. Like if you think, oh, the White House is significant to me. Well, black people built it. That's right. So if you think about music, if you think about the banjo, if you think about anything that you can touch, it belonged either to a brown or black narrative or a native people's narrative. And let's not forget, we had all along in California, so many Chinese American people mm -hmm. who for the longest time were not even considered, um, their work wasn't even considered significant enough to be citizens. So we have that all throughout our culture. And then with the opening of Ellis Island, we, and we have the Jewish culture coming in, we have Italian culture coming in, we have Irish culture. So, Right. We love to say that America is a melting pot, but I don't look at it like that. I don't think that we're a melting pot. What we are is, I think, a white iced cake. For so, sure. For sure. For we sure. Have, we have um, all these things that have been baked into this cake and, and we have this thick, thick layer of white, white yeah. syrupy icing That's right. on top to make it... Um, presentable to yes. make it um, special, which we never need it. We just never need it. And so we need to start looking at all these ingredients, giving honor to the people who are responsible for them and 
especially helping Black women not just carry the vote, but to be seen in every genre of Black woman. And we have multiple genres. And the reason that that's so important to me as a Christian is that when we decide how we are going to present people, when we decide to distort an image, like we did with Aunt Jemima, like we've done with Mammy, like we've done with Jezebel, like we've done with so many Black women, we are actually distorting the image of God. Yes, that's so good. We are taking Mm -hmm. the image of God and we are distorting it. And as white women, it's important for you because when you distort the image of God, it affects your own image. And so this thinness, this constant struggle for thinness and smallness in white women has a racialized history as well. And so we need to look at that. We need to look at, okay, why did it become so bad for white women to eat um, and to, to eat in front of their dates. Like what's this whole salad thing? Yeah. Well, there's a history to that. There's a history to that, that appetite was for unruly people Mm -hmm. and the unruly people were black women insatiable. Um, And so we, we get these messages and we think that all of this is new and we're still doing it. So we are still colonizing a lot of what we know about food and the diets that we, we come up with. Um, there's a great book called Fear of the Black Body. I highly recommend it. It's, it's a dense read, but even if you just listen to her interviews, her name's Sabrina Strings, it's worth it because we have, we have so needed to have a, a hierarchy of um, a caste system of blackness that we've done it even in our food. Like what is what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, what is acceptable amount of calories, what isn't an acceptable amount of calories, mm-hmm. what's exercise, what isn't exercise. Um, all those things we've done and, and it's in whether we see it or not, there we've done it in a way that's very colonizing. And um, it's troublesome because it's caused our kids, our daughters and our sons to have a false idea of what beauty is. Yes. Yeah. And, and so we have a very narrow idea of what it means to be beautiful in this world. And because of that, we have missed out on so much of God's beauty. It's, it's, it's absolutely, I must break God's heart. I always think because there are all, I, I think of God creating this, super fantastic person right Mm -hmm. and god has taken all this time to decide exactly how that person should be and then that person is born into the world and presented to the world and we the church goes not modest enough we decide that their body shape is a sin because it's too big and therefore they must be gluttonous um, and it's really a weird thing that we we continue to do that when 
we never tell a tall person that they should be shorter or a shorter person that they should be mm-hmm. taller. Mm-hmm. Um, we never tell people that. We don't say, well, your hair should be thicker and therefore, you know, you must be doing something wrong in your diet. But we do that with, with size. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that comes from this notion that paler, whiter, blonder, blue-eyed is better than anything else. What you don't want to be is Aunt Jemima. We need to free ourselves. And I hope that we do. I hope that there's a lot of freedom this month for people. Free ourselves to embrace everyone's body as God has made it. And I hate the phrase when people are like, I know there's a thin person inside me. I hate that. Right. Like as if, the thin person is just waiting right, now. Right. As if that's the ideal, the best. Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, what a terrible, terrible, terrible story we fed ourselves. And a lot of that has to do with patriarchy and a lot of that has to do with silencing women, diminishing women. And that I, I'm certainly not saying that everyone needs to go out and gain 30 pounds. That's right. not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that we have wasted so much time on body image and we have silenced people who don't fit a certain body image so much that we've missed out on the golden beauty of people, just difference. This is, I wasn't, I didn't know this conversation would go this way today. I knew this was a week we were going to plan, but I am tearing, I am tearing up as you're talking because you're speaking to me because I've shared with you, like I have a history of eating disorder, anorexia. I mean, I'm 5'10". I weighed less than a hundred pounds at one point in my story. And it's like, I've never really thought about all of those things, you know, I've been to therapy for, but never the racialized reasons behind that the colonize the patriarchy like women being smaller why have i always thought being smaller is you know so Mm -hmm. there are so many layers there Um, There a lot of lot of layers there and i love that we're linked to because it's hard to get this book right now but she does a wonderful there's a lot that she's done a lot of lectures on it Mm -hmm. and you should see the lectures because as you're watching the lectures you're like Oh my gosh, we really have even, and I did some other things and you did too. We did a lot of different research, but we've been texting each other like crazy. It's kind of like broken open a dam of Yes. Like, and that's what I'm oh, hoping listeners like yeah. want to dive in and look at these dive links and learn things that you don't already know about black women in history. Know. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was so telling, I and so many times as I was listening to the lectures and watching videos and reading the blog, her blog, there's a blog called the Jemima Code. Um, I had to stop and just go talk to my husband. Like I was just like, oh, I have to tell you this. <laughs> Because there's no one else here and I have to tell you, I have to tell someone. Yes, but, um, that's why I was texting you because I didn't have anybody. <laughs> but I loved when she said, think about the term slaving in the kitchen. And I was like, I have never considered never. or working like a Georgia slave. I've heard people never. say that. And I just think we have demeaned what it meant yes. to be enslaved. We've even yeah. like, it couldn't be any lower, but now- we get paid no respect or honor because it's really ugh, goes on so many levels. How we demonize the kitchen 
in so many ways. And the funny thing that I was noticing, and I haven't done research on this, but something that I noticed was that the interesting thing is that, so you have in the 20s, 30s, 40s, you have this huge period of time when it's common to have a African-American domestic working in your in white homes of every income level, just of all income levels, okay. uh, having, having the help of Black people, whether they worked in your home or they worked beside you on your land, or, you know, if you were a white sharecropper and, and you were um, sharing part of that work with with black sharecroppers, like there there was this domestic work of blackness that of black people that was being capitalized all around the country in various ways. Um, if you were a middle class family and you sent your laundry out, and there was someone like my grandmother who took it in, washed it, brought it back to you. You were a poor person who went down to the barbecue pit and got the barbecue that the black people were making. Whatever it was. Mm-hmm. We we were there. So you have this whole thing going on in American society for all those decades. And then in the 50s, the white woman is taking care of the home. Middle class society is becoming. And guess what? Suddenly that workload gets easier. There's washing machines. There's Mm -hmm, dishwashers. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's um, TV meals. Um, So everything's made convenient. That's right. And white women start writing books about how to do it as if they've been doing it forever. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is that, but none of that was done for black women. Like no one was trying to figure out how to make a dish. You know what they're trying to figure out? How to to fix that cotton gin. But they weren't trying to figure out how to make it easier for black domestics to do their work. That's right. also, to that point, a lot of those things that have, have been invented, such like the iron, were invented by Black women who were domestics, who needed to figure out easier ways to get it done. We, we should talk about that, too, um, yes. later in the month. And I'll be talking about a lot of this stuff in blog posts. I'll be posting pretty much every day, as, as often as I can, because okay. so many stories. There's, There's so, so many. many. So we're kind of winging this as we go here, Marcy. So please <laughs> go check out Mockingbird History Lessons on Instagram, your yeah. Black Coffee with White Friends Instagram. You're going to be posting things. It's a great time also to check out subscribing to Mockingbird History Lessons, because I'm sure, I don't know, but maybe you're going to have some more deep dives into this on there. I don't know if you are. Yeah, not, I am going to have some more deep dives. And I don't know what Letty's doing. Like, I know that you're going to have Letty, yeah. who's a historian, to come yeah. on. And I know she's going to, I'm sure, cover things for Black History Month. But I always caveat this because I this has happened to me. I tend to get a lot of followers for Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And then I get a bunch of people who, who quit after the month is over. And that's fine. I guess you're nicer to people than me. That's frustrating, but okay. I don't want to tell people how to spend their money or what they should do with their time. But we are more than Black History Month. Don't let this be like, I took the time for Black History Month and now I know all there is to know about history and Blackness. And, you know, because I'm telling you, George Floyd isn't the last upheaval for our country. I mean... Think about that. He's not going to be the last. Still, there have been several others since that no one has had a blackout or there hasn't been a huge social media presence for those deaths still happening. And I think we we can't just decide to do this work 
for the big moments. It has to happen in the smaller places of life. And I get the privilege of doing this for my work. And I get that. I get that not everyone can spend, you know, it's not their job to spend eight hours a day on this. But I just want people to tune in a little a day, just dial in a little a day, just to keep it ever present that we have to do better than we've done. And right now there are people working very hard to suppress history, to suppress these stories. And that's a very real thing. And so when people say, how come I never knew this? It's like, well, because a lot of Confederate women, daughters of the Confederacy, handled how textbooks went out. And the White White Women's Council, Council for White Women or something like that, handled and got those, got on those PTA boards and made sure that certain things were not taught in school. If you're wondering why the only book that people keep reading about the Black narrative is To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a reason for that. Well, I'm reminded my daughter came in the other night. She is doing college classes and she loves history. She's in a history class this semester. She came in to talk to me about it. She's like, I I love it. I love learning history, but I don't know how many times I have to learn about Carnegie and Rockefeller. Like, are there, (laughs) she's like, aren't there other stories? Like there needs to be, and I'm like, there's so many other stories. And so, so many, and that's what we're hoping to do this month, but also spur people's interest to keep looking for those hidden stories. I mean, and continue past February. I mean, that's why I was honored that you asked me because I honestly had nothing slated for February because I really... I have mixed feelings about just the one month being like, okay, let's focus on this because it's not just a fad or a trend or like, this is what we're supposed to do this month. I mean, hopefully we've all heard it. Like uh, American history is black history. Black history is American history. It's more Mm -hmm. than one month, but maybe this month will give you a deep dive into those hidden stories, the women that didn't get recognition, the women that we don't see. And one thing that Tony Tipton Martin, I saw that she wrote, I don't know where if it was in her blog or just the point of her book was rewriting black women's history, one recipe, one audience at a time. I, I love that. I yeah. do too, because I'm like, that's what we're doing. That is what we're doing this month and hoping that there's a ripple effect that that continues. And we hope that, I hope that you have joy in your kitchen. Yes. I don't want people to walk away from this. I think that the, the greatest honor that we can give to these women is to not erase them and pretend like they never happened. But to say they cared enough to, they cared enough to allow us in. Because a lot of them, and I'm not talking about the ones whose recipes were taken. I'm talking about the ones who actually did write cookbooks. Yeah. I would hate for them to like be, for them to not have their legacy celebrated because we have fragile feelings about what we've done. That's right. So I want to celebrate these women and I want people to like, we'll be giving different challenges. Like this week, we're just saying, trace the roots of some of your favorite recipes. Go to a favorite recipe that you've had in your family and trace its roots. Yes. And see where that recipe comes from. That's where right. where where does it come from? And see what their where their ingredients come from. If you have kids, this would be a really fun project yes. for them if they were yes. to go through every single thing and say where the where it comes from. There's this wonderful book called How to Cook an, Amer- an Apple Pie. Okay. I think it's called How to Cook an Apple Pie. And it's about this little girl. She's in America, but she flies all over the world to where the best ingredients are for this apple pie that she's going to bake. It's her apples from Washington. She gets her 
um, vanilla from Madagascar. She gets her sugar from, I think she gets it from Jamaica or the Bahamas. I can't remember. And then she gets back on the plane and she brings all the stuff together. And at the end of the children's cookbook, there's a recipe. But you can do that for your own. Yeah. I don't know what it is. That's that's a thing for you. But whatever the dish is, if it's rice pudding or it's a certain kind of a cake to take it down to, okay, so what is the history of this chocolate? Like right. what is the history of this particular pecan? What what stories can we find about that? And then make the recipe. And, so, and Jubilee is a great book to get yeah. that. We really would love oh, people to buy that because the stories, that there's stories behind the recipes and origins. Like it's fascinating to read through for things as simple as biscuits yeah um, right behind biscuits. so so yeah. that's our challenge right then for people to find a favorite recipe and trace it and look at yeah so this week find that we'll give you something new every week but for this week find a favorite recipe and trace it okay and think about and you'll you'll be thinking well what does that have to do with black history i'd be surprised if like that recipe doesn't connect some way to yeah. some sort of diaspora blackness but yeah. What it does is it, it helps us to prime the pump for our little ones and prime the pump for ourselves to look deeper into yeah. our stories, to question the narratives. Like I never questioned, well, why is fried chicken bad? But, you know, Coco Vaughn, if you've ever made it, right. isn't. Right, right. And sweet potatoes, you, like look up sweet potatoes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I love sweet potatoes. I had no idea the deep history. Like, I mean, there's just so yeah, many things that I think history. everybody is going to be shocked if they start digging into some of their favorite foods and recipes and history behind them. Right. And I'll be quoting from both Jubilee and um, just Tony Tipton Martin, period. Um, and, and showing some of these cookbooks in my feed for the month. And I might continue on into Women's Month because I think it follows right after Black for History sure. Month. For sure, yeah. But there's just so much that I hope that women start to, that we start to take. I, it makes me so sad when I think of all the things that I didn't eat because I was trying to shrink my body or I was trying Same. to control um I was trying to control what the narrative that I put out in the world through my body because we tell stories through our body yeah. and um how much time I, I have spent I remember after being being pregnant with my daughter and um it took me a long time to get pregnant and I finally got pregnant and I was with a friend who was really trying um, we were at a couple's dinner and my friend was really trying and another friend who that was the last thing she was our fabulous friend who is who is getting married for the first time in her 50s okay. and she's still just this fabulous woman and, um, she, so that's not her narrative and then there was another friend who who had just had her baby and I said that of all the things I wanted for this labor labor y'all Black women dying at higher rates than any other yeah. um, demographic of women. I said that I didn't care about anything as long as I was able to get back into my single digit genes. I was naive yeah. then, for sure. But also, I knew the narrative. We make such a big deal out of these um stars who bounce back into their, mm -hmm. you know, 18 year old looking body 
um, and they keep it until they're well into their 50s and 60s. And that's great and good. But at what price are we, what is the price that we're paying to be able to tell that story? And there is a price to it. So it is also about, as you're talking, just reclaiming and embracing that joy of kitchen and the cooking and food. And when we started off this episode, I said, oh, I don't really even like to cook. Well, when I'm examining that, I'm like, well, why is that? Because I think it's a history of just a love-hate relationship with food and the kitchen and that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to work on reclaiming that too for my own daughters. Yeah. It, yeah. Even if it's just one thing, because y'all, I'm, I'm okay with people who don't want to cook. <laughs> that That is fine. It's not fun for everyone. But um, what I don't want, this is, it's so strange that this is the hierarchy, this is the patriarchy narrative that we've been given, that the kitchen belongs to the woman, and yet we have this serpent relationship with it. You know, how mm-hmm. when Eve took a bite of the fruit and, and the whole curse of, there would always be this sort of mm-hmm. bitter relationship between Eve and the serpent. It, I feel like we have that with the kitchen. There's such a troubling um, narrative there for so many women. It's it, it binds us in it, in it, and it imprisons us. And yet, it should be a place of freedom. Like we should, yeah. we should be in that place. I'm able to stand as whoever we are and eat whatever we want, and not have this guilt and shame attached to the very place that the patriarchy has sent us. That's right. There's no mistake in that. And I feel like we should take that back in the name of these women who had no choice. Right. Of these women who had no choice, we're going to take back our bodies and we're going to take yes. back the kitchens and we are going to take, they're not going to be the thing that demonizes how we feel about ourselves. And um, we are going to take back the image of God as it should be, be it that you hate cooking and that is fine. I'm not a fan of laundry. But, um, <laughs> I don't I mean? hate cooking. I shouldn't say I hate it. I, I yeah, anyway. You that these roles that we've been yes, yes. And we've been told how we should feel about them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of what we've been told is makes it better for men. Makes, right more comfortable for whiteness to, to stay seated. And right. I think we need to dethrone and debunk a lot of that. Marcy, we've been talking for an hour and a half, recording for an hour and a half. So oh, should we wrap it up? I could keep talking. Yeah. I have other thoughts in my head, but I'm like, I just need to probably we stop. Have because we have a whole month. <laughs> we do. One thing, I don't even know if I'll leave this in, but when we talked about real quick, finding out some of our favorite foods or childhood memories, because you put on this list, like think about your grandmother's kitchen and what she cooked and yeah. Okay, so this was my my morning discovery with this subject is I'm thinking about my grandma who had six kids, always cooked. So I, I stayed with her a lot as a child and every morning I'd have cream of wheat for breakfast with her. Loved it. Well, then I look at the history of it. Who's on the yeah, front of that box? Exactly. I was yeah. like, I never even correlated yeah. that. And finding out the yeah. story behind that one is a very similar as Aunt Jemima. Right. With that box. Yeah. Um, look at who's on Landa Lakes. Yes. And Uncle Ben. Like, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Again, so much, so many directions to go with this, Marcy. <laughs> we'll wrap it up and we'll put links to the books that we're really hoping people buy and we'll make sure they know where to find you. And then we'll be back next week with the conversation to carry this on with a few other 
few other black women that have voices and stories. So yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm super excited too. I'm super excited. I feel like I'm just the white girl learning oh, no. and listening. Thank but thank you for, for allowing us this space. Thank you. Listening and learning with us today. As always, the links mentioned, including the book, The Jemima Code, and Jubilee, will be listed on the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. As we mentioned, The Jemima Code is a book that's somewhat hard to get, but Jubilee is one I highly recommend you purchase this month so you can join Marcy and I in learning more about recipes and the stories behind them. Also, if you don't already, be sure to follow Marcy on Instagram at Black Coffee with White Friends and Mockingbird History Lessons. Each week this month, Marcy will be posting images and deeper lessons about the subjects we discussed on the podcast. I'll also be posting some things on my Instagram account at Her Story Speaks Podcast, such as reminders about the weekly challenges, and I'd love to know what you are learning and cooking.